Oh my, if a picture painted a thousand words, then what picture would sum it up for COVID? Oh man, here we are, As Much Protein as an Egg, episode 11, chapters 19, 20, and 21. Enjoy it. It's your boy Seth Harwood bringing you as much protein as an egg back in effect. SethHarwood.com, RightWithSeth.com, and of course, Patreon.com slash Seth Harwood. I'd love to hear from you. You're listening to Seth Harwood. Subscribe today at patreon.com slash Seth Harwood. Okay, here we are. We are back and I'm happy to have you with us. What's up? What's up? What's up? COVID continues to make life crazy. I'm doing a lot. I've got a new anthology journal coming out very soon. It's Ground Fiction. You can check it out at groundfiction.com. I'm really excited about it. 16 new authors to introduce you to. We'll have some podcasts to share along the lines of that as well. And for now, please support by telling a friend about As Much Protein as an Egg, the podcast, or leave a five-star review on iTunes, on Amazon, or tell a friend about it. You can also pop over to patreon.com slash Seth Harwood and add your name to the list of patrons there. You can pledge any amount of money, and that would be great. My daughter's been listening to a podcast called Stories Podcast, hosted by Amanda Weldon. And she says, you can support us by leaving a five-star review on iTunes, supporting us at patreon.com slash Seth Harwood, or tell a friend about it. Thanks. And now on with our episode. Thanks again to Carlos for kicking it with us. Episodes 19, 20, and 21 coming at ya. Chapter 19 When Artemis Kellogg and Emily Plinko had finished with, quote, and so on, he left her and went back to his desk. For a while now, weeks and months, he had been putting off the work of the Grand Master Committee. He had felt unworthy to the task, but now he felt worthy. He knew he was on the committee for a reason. The reason was this, to advocate for Kurt Vonnegut, though he didn't know it at the time. Someone had once told Kellogg to, quote, fake it until you make it. It was actually Harold, his psychiatrist, who had said this. That was the advice they gave all the new, young doctors when they started on their rotations. These were fresh-from-medical-school young men and women who didn't feel like doctors yet, but to the patients, that's what they were. Acting otherwise just caused problems. So this is what they did. Faked it until they made it. Now Kellogg would do the same. He would do the work of the committee to, quote, make it. Putting the work in would make him a confident member. He wanted to become a champion committee member. Kellogg opened the box of books and manuscripts he had received as a member of the committee. Works by Vonnegut, Nagy, and Kiesler filled the box. 
Kellogg took out the books of Vonnegut. He made a pile of them on his desk. These were the books he knew already. He had read them all growing up, and particularly in one brief stretch of his twenties when he smoked a lot of pot, believed a little in anarchy, and loved Vonnegut to his core. In the past months, he had been rereading these books again, finding them to be every bit as worthy of the award as he could imagine. There were a lot of reasons for Slaughterhouse-Five to make the modern library list. The last Vonnegut book that Kellogg took out of the box was called Palm Sunday. He had never read it. The cover announced the book to be, quote, an autobiographical collage. There were two drawings of Vonnegut by Vonnegut on the cover. This was typical Vonnegut, Kellogg thought. He smiled. Kellogg didn't want to read the book now. He'd get to it eventually. Part of what he liked about being on the committee was getting the free books, especially those by Vonnegut. What intrigued Kellogg most about the book was its title. Palm Sunday was a holiday familiar to Kellogg. One of his favorite authors had done a lot of podcasts of his early work and released his first novel, Jack Wakes Up, on this holiday way back when. The book's main character was a one-time action movie star named Jack Palms who got himself into a lot of trouble around San Francisco. Drug deals and such. Because of his name, the book released on this holiday, which the author rechristened, quote, Palms Sunday, and so on. That author was actually me, by the way. Funny coincidence, that. A podcast was a thing on the internet that gave you sound files to listen to on your smartphone. In this case, a serialized version of an audiobook that the author read himself, a, quote, podcast novel. What a headache to think about what that means. But Kellogg liked podcast novels because they were free. He liked listening to a lot of podcast novels for this reason. He found them on a site called patiobooks.com. This mention is definitely not meant to indicate an association with or sponsorship by patiobooks.com. Oh, boy. No, indeed. Holy Bacchanon. Artemis Kellogg took the next thing out of the box, a picture of the original cover of Palm Sunday. This showed a photograph of a smiling Vonnegut lying down on the grass somewhere. He wore a heavy sweater over a white-collared shirt. He looked happy. His hair was long and curly and covered his ears. Kellogg liked the idea of Vonnegut being happy in the picture. He liked Vonnegut. The haircut reminded him of the picture of himself when he was eight years old. The next thing in the box were two books by Laszlo Zoltan Nagy. Kellogg put his feet up on the desk and leaned back in his chair. Do you want dinner? Emily Plinko asked from another room. Maybe in an hour. Sounds good, she said. With his feet up, Kellogg started to read the first book by Nagy. He read fast. The book was called The Sophomore, and told the story of a futuristic Hungarian handball player who played in a league called the Intergalactic League of Handball, the IGLH. They played on a lot of different planets and even in other galaxies, not just in the Milky Way. A lot of these games were fixed by the Intergalactic Mafia, Kellogg thought this was cool. Indeed, it was. What surprised Kellogg most was the handball this Hungarian and the novel's aliens played. It had nothing to do with the handball Kellogg knew in New York City, which was a lot like racquetball, but without the racket. This sport in the IGLH was like soccer with a small basketball you bounced, like water polo without the water, like basketball with goals and goalies instead of hoops. 
All this would have thoroughly confused Kellogg if he hadn't seen handball once in the Olympics. It still didn't make much sense to him, but he understood enough to read the book. The biggest difference between this intergalactic handball and what Kellogg had seen in the Olympics was that in the future, aliens from many different planets played in the league. Some had extremely long arms, others could jump very high or run very fast. One species was like a land-walking octopus. These were called Roctopi, on account of their planet was very rocky. Like Roctopus, but more than one. Very clever, thought Artemis Kellogg. The Roctopus played goalie. When Kellogg finished the sophomore, he was crying. Nagy had made the young intergalactic handballer such a compassionate team player and compelling hero that Kellogg hung on the last chapter's every word. The book contained three epiphanies of the variety that affected both reader and character at the same time. Flannery O'Connor be damned. The sophomore was a tour de force. Kellogg put it down. He still liked Bluebeard better. Especially the part at the end when they go into the barn to see that big painting. He loved that. No spoilers. Kellogg went to eat dinner with Emily Plinko. Chapter 20 Bainbridge McGee was back at his desk writing. Here is what he made happen to Billy Pilgrim. When Billy Pilgrim became unstuck in time and left the rooftop in Park Slope, he wound up in Ilium, New York in 1961 on New Year's Eve. He was disgracefully drunk at a party and was about to have sex with a woman who wasn't his wife. This would be the first and only time he would be unfaithful. This woman was asking him why people called him Billy instead of William. Business reasons, he said. Then they had sex. It caused a big disgrace at the party, and especially with Billy's wife, Valencia. By some far-flung coincidence, Valencia is also the name of a street very close to where Artemis Kellogg and Emily Plinko now live. This is a street populated almost entirely by hipsters. A hipster is... Oh, I won't get into that. After he sobered up the next day, Billy had a lot on his mind, mostly about his infidelity and the huge burning towers in a future New York City. He felt most awful about the towers. What had he seen, he wondered. Why had he shown up there? It all definitely seemed like a particularly bad time to show up in the future. Also, this seemed like a particularly bad time to show up back in his past. Valencia was pissed at him all to hell, wouldn't even speak to him or come down from their bedroom, and all he could do was sit in the kitchen thinking about burning buildings and drinking coffee. His hands shook. His head hurt. Then, while Billy was working hard to get his very hungover head around the events he had just seen in 2001, he blinked and came unstuck in time again. This would have felt awful to anyone who wasn't as used to being unstuck as Billy Pilgrim. He was actually getting pretty familiar with all this unstuckness and popping around. Coincidentally, or accidentally on purpose, this was Bainbridge McGee doing this, remember? Billy wound up right back in New York City on September 11th, 2001 again. Only this time, he was right down at Ground Zero, just beneath the World Trade Center towers. It was 9.37 a.m. again, exactly the same time he had popped up in Brooklyn on a couch in Park Slope. Billy had no way of knowing this at the time, but American Airlines Flight 77 had just crashed into the Pentagon. This was a rough turn of events for Billy Pilgrim. 
He was certainly the servant to a cruel master. Bainbridge McGee wasn't fucking around. He wanted to up the stakes and get right down to it. He thought his own literary reputation and that of Kurt Vonnegut the Great were both on the line here, and he'd be damned if he was going to spare old Billy Pilgrim from some hardship with all that writing on his new masterpiece. So there Billy was, on Cortland Street, just outside of Century 21, a medium-sized apartment store that would certainly not fare well in battle against Costco or Walmart and would never put a local hardware store out of business. It only sold clothing. To Billy's left was Liberty Plaza, a building. People were running past him, heading away from the towers. All around them, papers seemed to be raining out of the sky. Documents of all sorts loosed on the world from the twin plane crashes into the towers and the opening up of the building's higher floors. Office work spun out of the building, headed down. At the actual tower, Billy Pilgrim could see other debris falling. All of this was going the opposite direction of the smoke. There really wasn't much of a breeze, he noticed. This is where Billy Pilgrim found himself. Because he was an optometrist, Billy Pilgrim had excellent glasses, a perfect prescription, which allowed him to see details of the building that you or I could not see. He saw the South Tower, which was closer, and where the plane had collided. It was an extremely large, gaping black mass up toward the top fifth of the building. People screamed. All around him, cars made awful sounds that he didn't recognize. These were the car's alarms, a semi-effective security measure invented in the 1980s. They called and screeched, hollered and yelled. Billy started walking toward the towers. He was going the opposite direction of the traffic. He was fighting the crowd. What was drawing him to the tower? Catastrophe. Fear. Curiosity. Perhaps a morbid obsession with death. Whatever it is that makes us look at a crash on the highway. Perhaps it's the idea that if we look at death, we'll see something important to us in life that we'll understand something we didn't before, perhaps to have an epiphany. McGee drove him on. He wanted Billy Pilgrim to find that thing that would explain his life, all our lives. Billy saw blood on the papers. He saw an empty white shirt floating in the breeze, a button-down that was unbuttoned, hanging open, arms akimbo. This was still nothing like what he had seen in Dresden. There, whole blocks were leveled, the entire city destroyed. But off somewhere far-flung in Europe, Germany even, this was just hours from Ilium now, just downstate, in New York, in America, in the United States. Billy didn't know what to make of it. He walked onward. He heard screams. Bainbridge McGee put his head right down on the old desk in his study. He felt exhausted. Where was golf and sun and drinking on Palmer's with Big Win? What was he doing in here inside, working his ass off and tormenting his psyche to dredge up old thoughts about a terrible day in U.S. history? McGee wanted to know these things. Where was exercise and, quote, fresh air? McGee, being older and wiser than Kellogg, had come to realize the importance of writing as a religion and exercise and, quote, fresh air as well. He knew everything had to be in moderation, except moderation. He spit into the waste can beneath his desk, a big goober. Fuck this, he said. He stood up, used his mouse to save his progress for the day. 
There was work, and then there was work. He needed to restock his cabinets, as Kilgore Trout would say. Let the water level rise back up in his well. He walked through his kitchen and living room and onto his patio. Ahead of him, under a brilliant sunny February day in the desert, was a crisp, enchanting golf course, quote, the Lynx, as he liked to call it. This was just on the other side of his pool and three gray concrete gargoyles spitting water into it. He had bought the gargoyles himself at Home Depot. McGee took off his polo shirt and unloosed his belly into the sun of the day. He didn't have washboard abs, but he was doing okay for his age, if he said so himself. He didn't use sunblock and didn't care. If he was going to die of something in this world, cancer from the rays of the sun might as well be the cause of it. Just as good a cause of death as anything else, he figured. So it would go. McGee took off his socks and shorts and undershorts. He stood on his patio naked as a blue jay. His penis was seven inches long and two inches in diameter when engorged with blood, in case you forgot. Currently, it was a semi-flaccid four inches long and one inch in diameter. A foursome of ladies was driving past in their golf cart. They had just hit their drives on 16 and were heading down the fairway for their approach shots. They saw McGee as only topless. Luckily for him, his Home Depot gargoyles prevented them from seeing his lower half. If they had seen his penis, they would certainly have left four scalding complaints in the suggestion box at the club. The club actually paid attention to suggestions left in its suggestion box, at least the kind about naked people bothering lady golfers. The club pro would have said more to them than, Thank you for your feedback. He would try to appease them. He would say something harsh to Bainbridge McGee. McGee wouldn't have cared. He'd be happy to show any of them or the pro his penis at any point they liked. But it would embarrass Big Wayne and some of the other nice fellows at the club and make it harder for McGee to get a good foursome to play with. And so on. Now McGee stepped forward toward his pool. He jumped into the cold of it, the cold chill like a plunge, and swam back and forth several times. He stood up and said out loud, I told you I was going to nail this shit, Kurt Vonnegut! He was yelling up to the heavens, where he hoped Kurt Vonnegut would hear him. Maybe this was more than a little crazy of him. Chemicals, what can you do? Bainbridge McGee didn't take any pills to help with the chemicals in his brain. His method of coping with bad chemicals was confidence. He had plenty of it. This is why he was yelling to Kurt Vonnegut that he would, quote, nail this shit. Nice ass, McGee, Sandy said. She was lounging on one of his reclining deck chairs. He had forgotten that she had slept over the night before and was enjoying the sun on his patio this fine morning. Nice fucking ass, she said again. Sandy had a dirty mouth, which only increased her appeal to McGee. Her last name was Sonnenfeld, in case I forgot to mention. Just so you know, her middle name was Oleana. Sandra Oleana Sonnenfeld. S.O.S. Not that that matters. Bainbridge McGee was doing just fine. Well, hello there, Sugar Plum, he said to Sandy once he had turned around. I didn't see you there. Hope you were admiring the view. I was, she said. I definitely was. Very good of you. Very good. Suddenly McGee was feeling very British about things. 
He swam to the deep end of his pool, which was rather shallow, and climbed over the wall that separated it from the hot tub. Now he splashed his naked self into the hot water and leaned back to lounge into a comfortable position. The sun beat down on his face. He turned on the bubbles. Where were those Mai Tais are ordered? Exactly what I was thinking. Why don't you go make us some? Sandy Sonnenfeld was a strong woman. She wasn't afraid to ask for what she wanted. Or fucking call somebody, McGee. Get us some fucking drinks. Jesus, said McGee. This was a common response to heavy swearing. The name of the Son of God. Strange. McGee was thinking about going to hit some balls at the driving range or working on a short game. Neither of these would be helped by a drink. On the other hand, what was life for if you couldn't add a Mai Tai to the mix once in a while? Sandy had on an old pair of McGee's sweatpants and a t-shirt. Don't you have a bikini to wear or something? I do have something, she said, standing up and walking toward the hot tub. She pulled the t-shirt up over her head and threw it onto McGee's hedges. He saw her bare, naked chest. He liked what he saw. Blood began to engorge his penis. Sandy had an especially nice pair of boobs. Imagine how McGee's penis responded when she dropped the sweatpants and joined him in the hot tub, and then when she started kissing him. And so on. Chapter 21 I was a few blocks away from Emily and Kellogg's apartment in my own humble dwelling. I was on the floor of the living room, playing with my beautiful daughter. We were both lying on our stomachs on an old quilt made by her great-grandmother in Lima, Ohio, in the year 1963. My wife's parents had actually conceived her under the very same quilt in the year 1970. Conceived means making a baby by way of sexual intercourse. Isn't this strange? About the quilt, I mean. What a coincidence. My daughter was amazing me yet again with how wonderful she could be. As I told everyone who would listen, I was, quote, head over heels for her. Being a parent was truly an amazing experience, unlike anything else and more than I ever expected. You should try it, but definitely not until you're ready. Use contraception. Seriously. My daughter had recently learned how to sit up on her own, back straight and legs right out in front. She could balance herself. She was smiling her big, wide-mouthed, no-teeth smile. Her smile was all lips and tongue. It was really unbelievably endearing. She laughed then, not because I was tickling her, but because she thought something was funny. Who knew what that was? Her laugh sounded like a mix of a cough and a laugh, really more like a cough. She was holding her new toy, Bruce the Moose. Bruce had great big yellow antlers she liked to gum. Anything you gave her, she would gum it into submission. This was what she did. It had me entranced. My daughter was named after a famous American writer whose second best book was named to the modern library list of the 100 best English language novels of the 20th century. Her best book was not mentioned. Go figure. It didn't make the list at all. Everyone knew her best book was better than the one that made the list. This didn't make any sense. It wasn't a coincidence, either. 
In any case, there we were, the two of us on the floor. I was happy. I liked being with my daughter. In seventeen minutes, I would feed her part of a peach. I was really very lucky. We had woken up early again, too early. Even though her mother changed her diaper and fed her milk in the middle of the night, she still woke up early. I was tired. She started crawling up my chest and onto my face, using my nose like a handle to pull herself up. I didn't mind this at all. She tried to straighten her chubby little legs. She was kind of standing. I loved it. Outside my apartment, brown teenagers from the nearby technical high school were smoking marijuana in my neighbor's driveway. Their brain cells were dying. So it goes. Okay, that's our episode for today. It's September 7th. Our pool is closing in one month on October 7th. And I'm going to get my butt out there. There are kids out there that need to be entertained. So remember, like Amanda Weldon said from the Stories podcast, you can support us by leaving a five-star review on iTunes or Amazon. Did you know Amazon has podcasts now? You can find this podcast in the Amazon podcasts. Uh, you can leave a five-star review on any of those. You can find the book version of As Much Protein as an Egg and leave that a five-star review. Or you can head over to patreon.com slash Seth Harwood and support us there to blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. Or you can just write me an email and say, hey, fuck nuts, love in the podcast. I'm going to go tell three friends about it. All these things have share buttons, and they're all free now. So tell some people, tell them they better get over to the Maltese Jordans and check it out. And you heard it here. Stay tuned. Stay criminal. Be a good person. This is a presentation from your boy, Seth Harwood. That's right. S-E-T-H-H-A-R-W-O-O-D. Coming to you here from Massachusetts, East Hampton, during the Corona COVID 2020. That's right. Your boy kicking it to you live and direct, fresh off the mic. SethHarwood.com Patreon.com slash Seth Harwood Patreon All the places Check it out Keep it locked <laughs> <laughs>